Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning for me, Peter Lewis, and a warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday the 4th of April. It's the final one for this holiday-shortened week as we prepare for the Qingming Festival and Easter. This podcast is sponsored by online financial services company Surfing Group, which is based in Singapore. In today's headlines, the OPEC Plus group of oil-producing nations, which includes Saudi Arabia, Russia and eight other countries, announced Monday surprise oil production cuts, totaling more than 1 billion barrels a day to extend through the end of 2023 in the face of weaker demand. Growth in China's manufacturing sector unexpectedly slowed in March, a private survey showed on Monday. The Kaishin manufacturing PMI declined to 50, retreating from an eight-month high of 51.6 hit in the prior month. The reading also missed expectations for growth of 51.7. The latest result highlighted growing doubts about the strength of the recovery in China amid the ongoing property downturn and global financial uncertainty. U.S. manufacturing activity fell to its lowest level in almost three years last month. The ISM Manufacturing Index posted a reading of 46.3 for the month. It was the fifth straight month of contraction in factory activity, suggesting that rising interest rates and growing recession fears are starting to weigh on businesses. And U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will meet Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen in California on Wednesday, his office confirmed, amid rising tensions between Washington and Beijing. She will stop off in Los Angeles as part of a 10-day trip that included Central America. China's Taiwan Affairs Office had previously warned President Tsai that if she meets with Mr McCarthy, it will be another provocation that severely violates the One China principle, and Beijing pledged to resolutely hit back. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Pete Sweeney, Financial Columnist at Reuters, and our US Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. In markets yesterday, the focus was on oil after the surprise cut in production by OPEC Plus members. In Asian trading Monday, Brent crude oil futures soared more than 8% at one stage, before settling at the end of the New York session more than 6% firmer at $84.93 a barrel. That was the biggest one-day gain in nearly a year. Goldman Sachs raised its year-end Brent crude forecast to $95 a barrel, while some analysts warned that oil could reach $100 a barrel. On Wall Street, US equity traders spent much of the session digesting the news from LPEC Plus, but ultimately shook off higher oil prices. Both the Dow and the S&P 500 rose for the fourth consecutive day. The Dow climbed 327 points, or 1%, to close at 33,601. The S&P 500 rose by 0.4% closing at 4,125. The Nasdaq Composite slid a third of a percent to end the session at 12,189. And the S&P 500 Energy Sector Index jumped almost 5% on the day. Hong Kong stocks initially eased from a three-week high, but recovered their losses by the close. The Hang Seng Index rose nine points to 20,280. The Hang Seng Tech Index was flat on the day. Mainland Chinese markets were up, with the Shanghai Composite Uh, Composite adding 0.7% to end the day at 3,296. And Chinese chip-related stocks advanced amid optimism that they will benefit from the nation's growing self-reliance push. 
after Beijing launched a probe into Micron technology. The CNI chip index, which tracks semiconductor-related stocks in Shanghai and Shenzhen, rose 5.2%. Chipmakers elsewhere in the region fell on the news. Samsung Electronics slipped 1.4% in Seoul, while SK Hynix dropped 1.6%. And you can get further updates on the latest market movements all on my daily blog. It's at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Morning. Good morning. And also with us is Pete Sweeney, who is financial columnist at Reuters. Nice to hear from you, Pete. Hey, Peter. Good morning. And over in Washington, D.C., we have our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Welcome, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Um, Barry, maybe I could start with you and get your thoughts on these um, OPEC plus production cuts. They're quite substantial, about 1.1 million barrels a day. Saudi Arabia is going to implement a voluntary cut of about half a million barrels per day, just under 5% of its output, it says. And this move comes is a bit unusual, isn't it? Because it comes outside of a, a formal OPEC meeting. So, so why are OPEC doing this? Well, I think, first of all, they want a higher oil price. And uh, they're probably going to get it if uh, oil is uh, West Texas, I think, has crossed into the 80s. But, you know, oil is a very volatile thing. I think the Americans are suffering from a couple things that have happened in the course of the last year. One, I think that uh, the Saudis feel insulted by when President Biden came to Saudi Arabia and, you know, just did a fist bump with the Saudi leader. I think that's first. Secondly, when... Xi Jinping was in Saudi Arabia and agreed to, you know, have prices in renminbi. I think that was a slap in the face of the Americans. And I think now Jennifer Granholm, who is the energy secretary, has made clear that the Americans were not going to refill the strategic petroleum reserve from which they had drawn quite a substantial amount of oil in the course of the last few months. So, uh, there you are. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what it means. Uh, clearly, there's a slowing, growing, a growing, a slower growth in the global economy, and I think that the Saudis and the other oil producers, ex the United States, are probably uh, pretty happy that prices have jumped and probably will stay higher. What do you think, Pete? Um, well, I mean, I think you know the worry. I mean, if you just look at the markets thing, the geopolitics is, is a little bit more difficult to parse. But, um, you know, certainly the Saudis are less deferential to the United States now with, with China clearly trying to step in and serve as a counterbalance there. Um, but, I mean, China doesn't want more expensive oil prices. Uh, I think the question is, you know, when you had the, the banking uncertainty, we saw oil prices correct a bit. Um, and also, you know, China big potential customer for oil um the recovery seems rickety um so the question of when chinese oil demand i think a lot of people expected chinese oil demand to come on imminently but as we saw from the recent um industrial activity data uh that seems to be delayed um so i mean they can get away with it but uh presumably um (laughs) they also want to fend off um pad themselves i guess against a potential continued weakness um, and what is a major energy consumer? 
Well, why was the rush, though? What was the rush to do this? Why did they have to do it outside of a formal OPEC meeting? I don't have an answer for that. I, I, I have no idea. I think that they do see a slowing economy and they want a they want to put a floor under the price. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget the American and European sanctions against Russia. I think that um, the Russians have continued to export large volumes of oil at low prices. So if you take something off the market, probably prices are going to rise a bit. So. But as to your question, Peter, I I, I'm, I have no clue. I have speculation. It may not be right, but that OPEC is worried also about its authority and its its power. I my I teach a class at Chinese University. My students are mostly mainlanders, and one of their presentations yesterday talked about OPEC and other organizations being things of the past, more or less, and being replaced by new organizations and and. Uh, and new entities where China would play a greater role. So that's sort of interesting as well. I don't know if that had a, was a factor, but it might be one of them. It's, it's the worst thing, though, that the global economy needs at the moment, doesn't it? While it's already battling yeah. all sorts of other types of inflation, we don't need commodities starting to go back up again, which, which they are. Well, you're right, Bill. No. But let's not forget, oil can go as low as $20. <laughs> you know, and I, I think that maybe, and again, like... Mark, I'm, I'm just speculating here, but it seems to me that they want to put a floor on the price and uh, they want to make sure that they don't have a collapse as a result of this weakening economy, both in China and in Europe and probably sooner or later in America. What, what can them... Yeah, I agree with that. Sorry, Pete, carry on. No, I just said I agree with that. Is there anything at all the Biden administration can do about this? You mentioned filling up the strategic petroleum reserve, which I think is at the lowest level now since about 1983, I think was the date um, I saw there. But, (laughs) but, But they wanted to fill it up at much lower levels than price levels than this, didn't they? Well, you're right, Peter. But look, let's not forget the United States is a major oil producer. Mm. So uh, there's a lot of people in Texas and up in uh, the Dakotas who are probably quite happy to see that uh, there are moves to support the price. Mm. Uh, As to the administration in Washington, I don't think there is much they can do. I think they would come under a severe criticism if they tap the strategic petroleum reserve again. So Mm. they'll they'll just um, complain, but take it. Has this now made the Fed's job more complicated? The, The sort of investors were starting to lean towards the Fed pausing um, but this is clearly inflationary, isn't it? So um, does this put the Fed in a bit of a dilemma now about what to do next month? I don't think so. Not yet. Uh, look, uh, an oil price chart would be quite instructive. The oil price was considerably higher than it is today, uh, six months ago. And it, uh, you know, fuel prices here in the States, gasoline prices, have come down substantially. Now they're going to recover. I, I expect that to happen. But I don't think as yet it makes the Fed's job more difficult. I think they're going to be data dependent and they're waiting. Uh, it's not at all clear they're going to raise again in May, but uh, they're certainly not going to cut, mm-hmm. not on the data that we see yet. And uh, probably they'll uh, just give it a pass. Pete, what do you think? Is this going to complicate the, uh, the path of interest rates? Well, for everyone, yes. I mean, nobody likes, I mean, this, 
this is the like this is the kind of inflation Japan doesn't want. It's not just the United States. Like there's a lot of central banks that are going to be pretty unhappy about this. But what are you going to do? That's why they that's why they make the big bucks. <laughs> I guess. Um, I mean, but again, in the background, there is the signs of flagging demand. Um, you know, is also evidenced by by flagging Chinese um, exports as well. You know, like there's there are there are. It, there was not going to, this was not going to be a year of economic jubilee for anyone, especially after the bank stuff. So in all this uncertainty, you know, OPEC is, is looking out for itself. It's a cartel. That's why people don't like cartels. Mm. Um, and, and that's, and, and now you're on the receiving end of it again. And, uh, you know, if anything, it will further in the long run, it will further feed the push to deliver to alternative sources of, of energy. Um, but in the short term, it's a reminder of, of why being, overly dependent on fossil fuels is a, is a strategic <laughs> and economic uh, vulnerability. Yeah, I agree, I agree with Pete. And I also think China plays an important role in this, uh, certainly on the sidelines. It's the economy with China, and I know that's another topic, but combination of weak exports, which don't look like they're going to change very quickly. Of course, struggling property sector and cautious, well, we can say cautious consumers, which is a nice way of saying they aren't spending at nearly the level that we hope, <laughs> hope they would at this point. So yeah, that's a worry. This could change quick to some extent. But at the same time, it's I think a little disappointing, at least in the short term, for not only not only the oil people but for a lot of uh, companies that are active in China. Yeah, I suppose, Barry, it's going to increase the uh, the anti OPEC voices in Washington, isn't it? There's that um, no OPEC bill. Uh, in in Congress, yes. the, the voices are going to get louder, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. But look, Congress is on vacation at the moment for the Easter break, and uh, I think they're too obsessed with China. They're not going to move <laughs> on OPEC. Uh, and by the way, you know, you see some of the investment houses calling oil could go to one hundred dollars. Well, from our conversation, I think we've got this one right. There's a slowing world economy. Therefore, there's not going to be that much demand for oil. I don't see oil going to $100. I think it'll probably settle in here at the 80s. But uh, uh, no, uh, Peter, I don't think we're going to see any action from the U.S. Congress on OPEC. Okay. Well, on China, um, the latest developments there, um, China chip-related stocks all advanced on on Monday amid optimism that they're going to benefit from the nation's growing self-reliance push after Beijing launched a probe into Micron technology. The Cybersecurity Review Office, uh, which is part of the Cyber Administration of China, the CAC, said in a statement on Friday that the probe, which is the first ever into a foreign company by the office, has been launched to safeguard key information infrastructure, supply chain security, and to prevent cybersecurity risks due to problematic products. Mark, what's your members saying about this? This this um, chip war between the US and China um, is gathering pace, isn't it, both in terms of the number of countries joining in um, and the scope of it? Sure. It's, it's a big worry because no one knows what the end game is, if there is such a thing as an end game. Mm. And so many products are dependent on, on chips of various different levels. To even to even operate autos, appliances, obviously high tech items of all kinds. So this just complicates matters just at a time when, when I think a lot of companies feel that things were not returning to normal, but at least were getting on a more even handed pace, if they could, if they could say so. So this this throws another uh, another area of uncertainty into the works. 
Pete, it's hard to imagine there is something wrong with micro, uh, Micron's chips, isn't it? I mean, they've been selling them for years all over the world without uh, without complaints. Yeah, I mean, and they don't store user data per se. Um, no, I mean, this is pretty transparent. The tit for tat, you know, the Biden administration is continuing to kind of tighten uh, the noose um, on on the supply. I mean, but this is just announcing a probe. You know, I think the stock market reaction um, could be <laughs> excessive. Um, I would be very surprised if China just stops importing Micron completely, but maybe it will. Hmm. Um, it would be a hit to its supply chain. Um, but yeah, the, the relationship keeps on getting worse and worse uh, on that front. It does. Um, yeah, it yeah. really does. Look, I tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. I would think that just not very far from where the three of you are, whether it's Shenzhen, Guangzhou, anywhere around your area, that there are a lot of engineers that are just rubbing their hands together saying, fantastic, look at the challenge we've got. We're going to learn to make chip making equipment. We're going to learn to make the advanced chips that we think are not going to be available. They'll meet this challenge. We all know that China is turning out more engineers than the rest of the world, and certainly the United States, all the United States engineers combined. I would just think this is a challenge. It'll be disruptive in the short term, but not in the long term. I, I agree, Barry, but although it's not going to happen overnight. So I so I think Pete's right. The uh, market's reaction might have been slightly pr premature, but certainly they're going to move in that direction. But actually, you know, it would make sense if there is more cooperation rather than a continuing conflict between the U.S. and China and, and China and Japan and, and so on in, in exactly these areas, because it would move much faster, actually, if they did this. The other situation, it's not clear what the Chinese government's role is going to be in, in the tech sector again, uh, how how uh, how interactive they're going to be there and, and perhaps intrusive at times. We'll, we'll have to see what goes on in the next uh, in the next few months. And it's important to remember a couple things. I mean, just for background, like for one thing, China, the, the, the idea that China wants to be self-sufficient in chips is not something that the U.S. caused. China has always wanted to be self-sufficient in chips. It has been throwing money at this for a very, very long time. Um, so there are reasons why it's not there, but it's not that like the U.S. embargoes caused China to suddenly wake up and decide that it wanted its own chip sector. It would love to have its own chip sector. It just doesn't have one for various reasons. Right. Um, separately, I mean, keeping in mind that, you know, the whole benefits of trade is that you don't have to reinvent wheels. So now that these Chinese engineers, instead of innovating and making new stuff, will be reinventing stuff that they could buy, which is not an economic efficiency for China, right? Um, it's an, not an economic efficiency for, for the West either because they can't sell these things. But in terms of innovation, like the 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 what 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 I think is part of the strategy on on the West side is like, well, we're not going to let them leapfrog anymore by just using our stuff and then going building next generation. They're going to have to build the last generation too, right? So, you know, this is not at all having any doubt that the Chinese engineering class will eventually solve these issues but it will slow down the progress towards the commanding heights if you have to rededicate the entire system towards reinventing everything that you used to buy from the West. And keeping in mind, that's not just chips, that's operating systems, 
Um, you know, there's all these these things that China has been trying to build on its own and has never gotten anywhere with. Um, Huawei is now trying to roll out its own version of like an Android thing. Um, whether that's successful is yet to be seen. Oh, and there's a question of like, if you make all these self-sufficient things and they can't be exported, you know, is the domestic economy enough to support them? So um, I don't think it's good news for anybody, but uh, but yes, it's a challenge, but it's not really a challenge that, you know, an economist would say is, is healthy. Mm. Advanced import substitution. It's, I, you know, I also, I think China definitely will get there as, as, uh, as Barry, as Barry said, but as Pete outlined, there, there are, there are some obstacles going forward and, you know, the best possible worlds would be if they weren't there for, for anybody, but they're going to be to some extent. And that's what we have to deal with. And what do you make um, about the Japanese uh, restrictions on, on their exports? They seem to be joining this widening campaign now, which includes the US and the Netherlands. China is trying to talk uh, Japan out of um, imposing those restrictions, which seem to be wider. Uh, and catch more Japanese companies than people initially um, thought. China's um, foreign ministry uh, basically said Japan was hurting itself and, and hurting others, and it accused Japan of being the U.S.'s minion um, in, in this. But this is, it is escalating, isn't it? It's a very uncomfortable relationship. This is not new, as you probably know, uh, between Japan and China, and it's 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 certainly revved up and Japan is feeling very insecure. They feel they're caught in the middle, uh, obviously between China and Taiwan, between China and Korea, between North Korea and, and, and other issues. And, you know, they, they're looking for ways to, to try to batten down the hatches. This mm. might not be the right way and it might not be easily enforceable either, frankly, in Japan as well. But it does send a, a strong signal and, and got the maybe predicted reaction from China they're, they're just going to stockpile, aren't they? Because th th these uh, measures don't take place for a few months. So all they're going to do is just rush chips over to Beijing and other parts of China and, and let the Chinese companies stockpile them up in advance. I think that will happen. Mm. Yeah, yeah look, I mean, I it's worth, it's worth noting that, that sorry, Japan and, and the Netherlands, who have both been targeted by this, have not been as strict as the United States has been. So right. they've already, I mean, the, the U.S. is giving people breaks on the war in order to maintain kind of the coalition uh, you, you note that uh you know japan was just given a pass to buy uh, oil at, over the uh, price cap um so i think the administration the, the biden administration is aware or has been made aware by the, by the japanese that their economy really can't handle you know to go as a full-on trade war with china um and so they're getting some exceptions, but uh, that's obviously it's in China's interest to gripe as much as humanly possible and further weaken those. But Japan is already less stringent, you know, than than, than the United States. Yeah, that's right. I think Mark has got it right about uh, Japan being in the middle. <clears throat> I mean, quite literally, uh, here is Japan's number one trading partner, China. And you're going to hit them. But at the same time, you've embraced the Americans on security issues. And I think that uh, that is a real achievement of the American diplomat in Japan, and that is a significant development. But um, I think the Japanese clearly want good relations with China. So they're caught. They're right in the middle. 
Barry, what would it take to end this? What would it take to persuade the Biden administration to bring an end to all these export restrictions? Or is there no end to it? This is just going to go on and on. I think that's the key question, Peter. And I don't think there is a way out. It's easy. I think that uh, you've got this um, joined at the hip relationship. The American business community wants relations with China. The American consumer is hooked on Chinese goods. The Chinese are hooked on the American export market. So these security things at the moment are in ascendant. But I think it would take very close relationship between the two leaders for this to de-escalate. And it probably could happen over China, over climate. But there's no sign that there's going to be any meeting of the mind. So it's a conundrum and it's a real problem. Mark, can I get your thoughts on China's economy? We've had the PMI data out this week. The Kaishin uh, manufacturing PMI unexpectedly slowed um, in March. The, uh, the PMI declined to 50 in March, right on the border between expansion and contraction. Uh, that mirrored what we saw in the official uh, manufacturing survey, although the manufacturing, the official manufacturing numbers did show a surging services sector growing at its fastest pace in more than 12 years. What, what do you make of the data? Yeah, services have, have been increasing. I want to hear what, what Pete and, and Barry say about this as well. But we saw, you know, in our forecast, we're, we're forecasting less than 5% growth for China this year. We may be wrong. Mm. But part of it reflects these weaknesses and these ups and downs. We think the second quarter may be stronger, and so do so do several of our clients, and we hope hope they're right. But still, it's the exports, it's the property, it's the lack of consumer spending or not nearly as robust as, as we wanted, and also these geopolitical uh, issues that we've, we've begun to talk about today. It doesn't mean that China's still not going to look better than much of the rest of the world. The economy will. I'm almost certain that that it will. But at the same time, I guess you could say a little disappointing, at least in the in the short to medium term, but not, but not shocking. Pete, it does make it yeah, clear, I mean, doesn't bounce... it? Sorry, Pete. Sorry. The, the balance in services is to be expected because they've got hit. I mean, if you look at the base effects, what things are recovering from, services got hit the hardest by lockdowns. You know, if you include like restaurants, travel, all these things. That was the stuff that really got frozen up. I mean, the manufacturing sector, as we saw, was, you know, they, they bent over backwards to make sure it kept churning along. Um, but now that exports, the, the global market is uh, demand is slowing, um, that's under softness. But so there's nothing that surprising about the nature of the rebound. What's surprising is how quickly it's lost steam. Um, we were always wondering how much fundamental demand would bounce back to drive growth without property, um, keeping in mind that Chinese households have a lot of money in property. Yeah. So um, with you've got the the external sector, you know, uh, weak, you've got people nervous about, you know, the future and feeling that their wealth is, you know, their, their fundamental source of, of savings, namely their, their housing or collection, collection of condos, whatever they have, is losing value or, or might be flat. Um, it's not surprising that people are being conservative. I mean, if you look at like the earnings of some of the tech giants, Tencent, I think you see like a bounce back in in advertising, um, you know, from from you know brands. But a lot of the sales that are happening in e-commerce appear to be like kind of the low end cheap stuff. Um, so the big ticket items are not moving. And then finally, and I'll let other people talk, but uh, 
there has not been a big consumption stimulus yet from China. Um, one of the central bank advisors in a forum said, like, well, what we should do is roll out a four trillion RMB stimulus package, just hand it out like helicopter money to people, you know, sort of like what the U.S. did in, in Hong Kong. But that's not <laughs> going to go anywhere. That's not going to go that the, there, nothing of that sort appears in the pipeline because the Ministry of Finance, you know, is already worried about the budget and they've got problems with their local government budgets and the fiscal problems. So. So what we don't have is any real serious attempt to boost consumer spending. And of course, you know, at the end, you can you can extend credit conditions to to businesses. But if they feel like they're not going to be able to sell their products, you know, they're not going to invest. Hmm. Barry, the final word to you. I mean, it, it does show, doesn't it, that China's not going to come to the rescue of the global economy this time around in, in the face well, that's of... that's true. And by the way, the imports of Chinese and other Asian goods into the port of Los Angeles are way down. And I'm not just sure the reason for that. I think a lot of it has to do with the labor relations in the port. But there is, in fact, not nearly as a robust trade as we thought there would be. Now, I'm going to defer to both Mark and Pete on China because you're so much closer than I. Okay. Well, sadly, we've run out of time. But but thank you all very much and have a very happy Easter. You heard there our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood, who's over in Washington, D.C., Pete Sweeney, who's financial columnist at Reuters, and Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. This is the final Money Talk for this week, with markets here in Hong Kong closed on Wednesday, Friday and Monday for public holidays. I'll return in a week's time on Tuesday, the 11th of April, when Mark Michelson and Barry Wood will be back. And they'll be joined by Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. In the meantime, have a happy Easter and enjoy the holidays. Money Talk.